Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are rounding out the year 2020 with a Q&A episode. Here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will be answering a handful of your questions that we've received via social media and our Curious Cat account. They'll discuss the historicity of the Exodus, whether we should venerate icons, the boundaries of sacramental administration, and they'll also discuss a question from James B. John on how to talk to an Orthodox Jew about fulfillments of the Old Testament scriptures. We want to thank you so much for listening to us in this year, and we hope that you will join us again in the year 2021. And with that, here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is controlling things in the background, and we'll be editing and smoothing everything out uh, so that it... Uh, it sounds like we're professionals, which is a kind of a magical thing that Brian does every week. We are recording the final episode of the calendar year 2020. We uh, are looking forward to 2021, New Year's Day, in just a couple of days. Uh, and we wish you a happy new year and uh, pray for the Lord's blessings on you and your families and friends in the coming year. Uh, we do pray that uh, uh, things will be less tumultuous in 2021 than they have been in 2020. Uh, but we take confidence in the fact that Jesus is king. He reigned through 2020. He's extending his kingdom. Uh, he's still uh, ruling until his enemies are placed beneath his feet. And that was happening in 2020 as well as it will in 2021. Uh, and uh, we we're confident that uh, the Lord is with us in the midst of all the upheavals. And we're also confident, uh, frankly, that the Lord is doing something great and unusual in the midst of this that uh, we can't fathom. We keep plugging ahead and we trust you, you do as well, uh, serving the Lord and and uh, trusting that he'll be orchestrating all of this uh, turmoil into to the benefit of his kingdom and to the benefit of his people. In this last episode, we're going to take a break from any series. We're going to uh, have some series in the, in the beginning of 2021, uh, intending to cover the Psalms in some fashion, and then we'll plunge into some prophetic texts uh, that's on the horizon for the next few months after the after the beginning of the year. Uh, in this final episode, we want to take some time to answer some of your questions. We've gathered questions from various sources, and Brian has compiled the many questions that people have asked, and uh, we've selected a few that we'll try to cover in this episode. We do this periodically, and uh, we'll try to cover other questions in the future, but uh, we've selected just a handful. We found by experience that when we try to do three or four questions in an episode, that takes up basically the entire episode. So um, that's as many as we tend to get through. Um, but uh, we'll we'll try to get to other questions in a future episode in another Q&A session. Uh, the first question we want to cover today is this, coming from a listener. Uh, given that the Exodus is so crucial to theology and interpretation, how do you grapple with the archaeological and historical evidence that suggests the Exodus as a pure, purely historical event did not occur? I ask as a believer understanding, seeking understanding, it's a question that has really been nagging me lately. Thank you for all your good work. And I, I know you all will have some answers to that question. The first thing that occurs to me in trying to address that question is to raise the question of chronology, which has been a question that's been debated by, particularly by some kind of maverick and eccentric 
ancient historians in the past uh, century or so. Uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky wrote on the uh, on the Exodus and uh, and and Egyptian chronology and argued that standard Egyptian chronology was uh, had doubled itself at various points, and there were there's almost a millennium of, of extra time inserted into the standard Egyptian chronologies. And he was arguing for a radical revision of Egyptian chronology. Uh, there are other more recent writers that have argued for less uh, less dramatic adjustments to Egyptian chronology. Uh, David Roll is one, R-O-H-L. And then Peter James in a book called Centuries of Darkness uh, deals with ancient chronologies in general, not just with Egyptian chronology. And the, the significance of that is the uh, when you, if you don't have the timing right, then when you start looking for evidence of the Exodus or the turmoil that the Exodus would have caused at certain points in Egyptian history, if you don't have the chronology right, then you're looking at the wrong time period. And so that's Velikovsky's event. He says in the standard Egyptian chronology, there is no evidence of anything like the plagues or the turmoil of the Exodus. But when you make this chronological adjustment, then you see uh, within the Egyptian records, he argued at least, you see these uh, the signs that Egypt Egypt is undergoing this tremendous upheaval and this tremendous crisis that he associates with the plagues and the exodus. And I'm not I'm not endorsing Velikovsky's solution to the problem, but that's just raising the question of chronology as a as a relevant question. Saying the exodus didn't happen partly depends on saying the exodus answering the question when it happened, and that depends on having an accurate Egyptian chronology, which is which is uh, at least in some quarters a debated point. Hmm. Just to underline that point, Peter, there's a great book by John Bimson, I think it is, called When uh, What's it called? When Did It Happen? It's called with uh, the word when in brackets. And the point he makes that is that when you think an event happened determines where you're going to dig for evidence for it. And that's not just a case of, you know, what layers you're going to look at, like the, the depth is also a case of you know what cities you identify as relevant to particular texts is going to depend upon when you date those texts so there's there's a um uh, a, geog- a geography to it as well and that that's a really helpful book on the subject i think one thing to bear in mind is it's very easy to say we have no evidence for this we actually have the hebrew scriptures <laughs> and it's very easy to dismiss the historical record that we have within the scriptures themselves when we're asking about the historicity of these events. Within the biblical text, I think you have a number of details that have a historical verisimilitude that gives weight to what's taking place. Um, Descriptions of flora, for instance, salt, tolerant reeds. You can think about the way in which the sort of cascade of natural events in the story of the plagues actually fits with events that could take place in Egypt. And some have argued, and I think quite compellingly, that the plagues can be seen not just as supernatural, but as hypernatural. God is um, orchestrating natural occurrences in a way that is clearly from him. But these are natural processes of events caused um, by God's involvement in the cycles of different volcanoes and other things like that that can explain what's taking place. But those provide evidence of a context within Egypt, an understanding of that world that would not be possible were there not some historical basis for what's taking place. Um, Other aspects, I think, of the story 
add to that, I think, the references to when you're thinking about a historical event, you may not have evidence of the historical event itself. You can't see the skid marks, as it were, in the historical record, but you can see that something has changed between different points, and there must be something to account for that. And there, I think, we can find certain aspects of evidence. We can also see influence of um, Egyptian thought and um, patterns of government, things like that, upon the early Hebrew developments. And there, I think, again, we can recognize there's been some interaction that the Exodus can help to explain. Yeah. To go back to Alistair's initial point that the scriptures themselves are evidence, you know, I think the question is, is right to say that the Exodus is crucial to theology. And I would want to emphasize that that fact is really good evidence for um, the Exodus. When you think about the extent to which uh, Egyptian origins and the Exodus shape everything in scripture. So, you know, just to give a feel for it, throughout Exodus and Leviticus, for instance, Israel are repeatedly told to treat sojourners in a, um, a respectful and loving way because they were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That's just sort of assumed as a fact that there's a corporate memory of, and it's then used to shape ethics and to launch um, imperatives. The Exodus is then tied to God's character in Deuteronomy and throughout the prophets. You know, he's the God who led Israel out of Egypt, and he said to make Israel unique. So, you know, Moses asks, has any God even attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? And, and you know, Amos and Micah make the same um, point. A knowledge of the Exodus is then credited to others, to Israel's enemies. So Balak in Numbers 22 is said to know about the Exodus. Rahab knows about it in Joshua. Jephthah alludes to it in Judges um, 11. It has this um, uh, function as a sort of event horizon in the past and a chronological era. So, you know, you often hear people say, you know, never since we come out of Egypt has something like this happened. Or um, in 1 Kings 6, the construction of the temple is dated as the 480th year um, of the Exodus, as if this was sort of uh, uh, an era which was used to date things. And you get timestamps in Exodus like that. It talks about, you know, the second year of their going out or the 40th year of their going out. Uh, then to forget the Exodus is seen as a real danger. Um, there are rituals like the Passover um, uh, designed for that. Old Judges speaks about how a new generation arose that uh, could forget the or had forgot the Exodus and would therefore need to learn uh, to make war. And, you know, we could go on and on and on. But I mean, just I suppose the simple point I wanted to make is how are you going to get a memory of Egypt ingrained like that in every layer of scripture, in legal corpuses, in the Psalms, in the prophets, in narratives, um, if this was just some uh, invented origin you know you have to posit this otherwise completely unknown phenomenon that a nation has basically invented a past and not a very glamorous past either a past of being slave and not even a very glamorous rescue from slavery kind of god rescues them and they just moan about it for 40 years you know so you you have to posit this very um 
unusual thing to um, to explain what you see in scripture if, if you're not going to talk about a, a historical exodus. And certainly if that history is not contested within the text, you have a uniform witness to this. It's found in the Psalms, it's found in the um, patriarchal narrative, it's anticipated in promises given to Abraham. It's seen, for instance, as a dating point for the building of the temple in the 480th year after the Exodus. It's seen in rituals. Um, It's the basis of the priesthood. It's where the tabernacle starts out. And as you say, all the key events, the Passover, the dating of the Feast of Tabernacles as the opposite end of the year to that, you have Pentecost connected to Sinai, all of these different events, practices and rituals, songs, histories are all forms of communal memory that does not seem to be contested in the way that you would expect if this was a later invention. Hmm. Yeah, that, that was a great summary from James and also you, Alistair. And what counts as evidence, um, and I just add one thing to that list, is uh, you have in the book of Exodus this covenant, this uh, commandment, covenant kind of uh, literature here with, uh, you know, Exodus 21 to 23 and all that, that fits in very nicely with what's going on at the time. Now, however you date the Exodus, um, it fits in with the other kinds of treaties in the near, in the ancient Near Eastern uh, culture. Uh, it's certainly not odd, and it, it doesn't seem to be a fabrication of some later um, you know, centuries later, uh, writer, it, it, uh, it fits so that all these things in context are not outside of the realm of possibility in terms of ancient Near Eastern culture and um, rituals and treaties. Yeah, I think that uh, just to highlight something that uh, James has said in the past, uh, you know, we if if somebody denies the resurrection of Jesus as a, as a, an actual event, uh, we say that they're not an Orthodox Christian. But uh, we uh, can give a pass to people who deny the re- reality of the Exodus. And I think James James has contested that instinct to give a pass. We shouldn't, and for the reasons that he just listed. I mean, it's so it's so interwoven with everything that the Bible is about. It's hard to imagine denying that the fact of that and and uh, actually claiming to be an Orthodox Christian. I think the other thing I would highlight from what both Alistair and James were saying is the question is, you know, uh, what's the alternative? How do you explain the actual phenomenon that are undeniable phenomenon? Uh, as, you know, James was explaining, you have to, or, and Al, or Alistair, I don't know which one now. Um, you, have to, you have to posit a kind of uh, massive uh, conspiracy or, you know, you have, to, you have to posit really, which has been what's posited by critical literature. You have to posit the... Uh, the connivingness of the priests who invent all these traditions and then uh, persuade uh, a, a gullible populace to accept all this. One last thing, I go back to a chronolog- chronological question. Part of the question is how uh, how old are the texts that we're talking about? And of course, if we're uh, using critical models and thinking that the texts are exilic or post-exilic, uh, then they are a couple of millennia, perhaps, away from or a millennium and a half, maybe away from the events that they're supposedly recording. 
but there's, I think, a, a good bit of evidence that uh, some of some of which you all have uh, reviewed that indicates that the texts are coming from the period in which these events are purported to have taken place. So these, it's it's like the Gospels. Uh, the, the further you get the Gospel dates away from the events of Jesus' life, uh, the more tenuous they become. But if you reckon, if you think of, you know, if the, I think they're good arguments for saying that the Gospels are quite early, very early. And I think that you can make, you can find uh, comparative evidence, for example, uh, in covenant-making treaties, uh, Jeff was alluding to this, uh, covenant patterns that go back to the period that's purportedly uh, being narrated in the Bible. So th- these are these are not uh, much later texts. They're texts that are uh, composed in the time of the events that that are being recorded, which uh, again is a strengthens their their uh, plausibility and reliability as historical documents. I wonder, wonder if I could make a more general comment, which is that I think these days there's a tendency to see archaeology as kind of hard and solid and almost indisputable evidence and uh, textual evidence, so memories preserved um, over long periods of time in manuscripts as um, much more subjective and ambiguous. And, you know, I, I think that's a really um, flawed way of looking at things. Um, you know, archaeology is a pretty recent endeavour in in the big scheme of things. You know, we had done history for hundreds and thousands of years um, with texts before we started using archaeological means. Um, we, and those means are, are quite ambitious. You know, can we dig stuff out of the ground and reconstruct history on, on the basis of it? Or, you know, maybe we can in in some ways, but it's, um, yeah, it, it's overlaid with all sorts of different assumptions and there are kind of many different views. Um, and our knowledge of those sorts of, let's call them facts for now, archaeological facts, is going to change a huge amount um, according to different variables. You know, so our view of uh, Egypt, life in Egypt, would have been very different if you just rewind sort of 70 years or something. Um, Our awareness of the evidence of the Exodus would be very different if we were all Egyptologists or had just sort of spent years studying this. And so I suppose I just want to make more general point that the the facts if you like the evidence changes over time and as students of scripture then there are going to be times when what we have in the bible lines up with those lines of evidence um, and times when it doesn't i would say in general we're seeing a, a coming together of those two things if you look at the broader um direction of travel but i would want to say that we need to be confident to just accept that sometimes um we're going to be holding to things which go against um, the evidence and, and to be happy to do that on, on the strength of the biblical testimony. Following on from that point a bit, um, it's worth bearing in mind that the conditions for things to be preserved for us vary very much from one place to another. So the fact that we can have some incredibly old documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls depends upon very unique climactic conditions. Um, whereas when you're dealing with the Nile Delta, you're not going to have the same conditions for preserving artifacts. You're not going to have the same records from the Egyptian administration that you'd have in um, Upper Egypt, where you'd have a much drier climate. You're also not going to have slave dwellings being preserved in the same way as some great temple. Um, Nor are you going to expect a great number of artifacts 
within the wilderness. First of all, they'd be difficult to find. And then there's the fact they're probably not going to be taking that much with them. They're leaving in a, in a hurry. They're not expecting to be on this journey for 40 years at the outset. And so a number of factors should lead us not to expect a lot of evidence. But maybe even a more general point uh, is um, archaeological evidence. Has there been any evidence presented that would contradict the uh, historical record that we find in the scriptures? Anything? Really, there haven't. And in fact, most archaeological evidence from the ancient Near East confirms biblical historical texts. Am I correct about that? I think that's right. I mean, I suppose if you wanted to argue against it, a lot of the uh, a lot of it is going to be uh, arguments based on an absence of evidence. So, you know, the non-mention of something like an exodus in Egyptian records. And then some of it will be from the other side of, of the Red Sea, or Reed Sea, I suppose. So some of it will be from Canaan. And you will talk about um, dates and sort of whether it looks like there's this big influx into Israel of, you know, a couple of million people at, at the relevant time. But... I think you're right, Jeff. Um, and there, I would actually want to point to, there was a great paper done in 2019, I think, by an Israeli um, archaeologist, um, Erez Ben Yosef, I think his name was. And um, he talks about the way in which various things are invisible to archaeology. And he talks particularly about nomadic cultures and how archaeology can't detect these sorts of things. It kind of relies upon cultures that leave stone remains and um it's, it's a really great paper perhaps we could put a, a link to it or something but it's a good corrective on various kind of um assumption related biases inherent in archaeology yeah i think james your point about uh, the variability of the evidence and you're saying that sometimes we're at odds with the evidence what you mean of course is the odds of, at odds with the current consensus about what the evidence means uh, because, as you say, the, the evidence is changing with new discoveries, with new ways of interpreting it, and so on. So, yeah, I think the instinct to try to uh, re-explain or to accommodate what, what we understand of Scripture to the current consensus of archaeological or any other evidence, I think is a that's a dangerous move to be, constantly be uh, making that uh, making that adjustment. It's the the old quip about being married to the spirit of the age and you'll soon find yourself a widower divorced whatever <laughs> let me move on to the second question that was uh, that we're going to try to cover uh, this is a different kind of question it's how would you describe and defend the boundaries of sacramental administration practically can a group outside the institutional church celebrate the lord's supper uh, in the absence of a faithful pedo-baptist church can a father take his child to the lake and baptize her Asking for a friend, the uh, writer says. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you should you should have phrased that a bit better, Peter, <laughs> when you submitted that question. But... <laughs> well, maybe to answer the first specific question here about a group outside the institutional church celebrating Lord's Supper, I've had this come up um, actually two or three times in my ministry, where uh, just not too long ago a group someone who was regularly attending our church uh, for a while uh, sent me a note and invited me to a Christmas celebration 
and said that they were going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at this Christmas party. And I uh, talked to him and said, you know, that's really not proper. And he was like, why? And my basic answer was, and I think this is a traditional and biblical answer, it was from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul talks about uh, the body of Christ and being the local church. When you come together as the church, you are celebrating the supper because it's about the local body uh, in its unity. And it's not designed to be an aid for private devotions or aid for devotions in a private party. It's, uh, it's all about um, the, the body of Christ. And what happens at the table is that the body comes together, memorializes the death and resurrection, and eats and drinks nourishment and finds joy and peace with one another around the table. And I think part of the question uh, behind the question is uh, to what extent is the church inherently an institutional structure? It seems Mm -hmm. to me the New Testament is clear that it is, that that's inherent in the church. When Paul talks about the church as body, uh, each, each member has its own role to play, but among the roles that are being played are roles of leadership you know, a body is a, is a kind of structure. It doesn't have the same kind of maybe rigorous or uh, geometric structure as you might find in a, you know, in a, a corporate flow chart. Uh, but uh, it still has a structure to it and leader, leaders have a particular role. I don't know if this is behind the question, but the, I think the, it's another sort of question to ask. What, what happens in kind of ext- extremities? Uh, if you have a gathering of Christians in a concentration camp and they're able to find times where they can gather together and secretly share, you know, a crust of bread that they've been able to save and do it uh, with, uh, you know, break bread and kind of do the rite of the supper. And there's no institution that's approving that. There's no minister Mm -hmm. present. Uh, It seems like in that kind of extremity, then there's an argument for saying that that would be legitimate, that depriving people in those kind of extreme circumstances of communion with Christ in this meal it would be better for them to to share it together rather than deprive them deprive them of it. What do you think of that that kind of that kind of argument? Again, not a, not as a norm. Yeah, absolutely. There are other kinds of situations like that. For example, in Illinois across the river, we've had churches that have not had ministers for years, and um, according to Presbyterian way of doing things, you can't have the Lord's Supper unless you have a minister. So some of these churches go for months and months without the supper because they can't get anybody to travel, you know, there to, to perform it. And that seems to me to be uh, not helpful, not healthy at all. Just uh, deputize someone in the congregation to act as the officiant and have the supper. Uh, You know, these, these rules, these orders, these church orders we have, they're helpful in many ways, you know, for, for good order. But um, in, in these situations, like you say, on the, on the outskirts of, of normal church life, uh, you have to be a little bit creative in order to accomplish what the supper is designed to accomplish. And, and so in those situations, I think it's, it's, it's okay to be creative. I mean, we could point out that, I mean, most churches in the past year have been living in somewhere in the outskirts of normal. Um, and many have had to 
devise more creative ways of getting around restrictions to be able to celebrate the supper together. I think the other thing is we see in scripture there are occasions where there are um, practices that are not done in the ordinary way. The circumcision of Moses' son is a good example. Um, on a slightly lesser, less extreme example, we could think of the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, which ideally you would want it to be some sort of communal event, but it's just Philip and the the eunuch. I think part of what we're trying to think about is what is the intent of the practice? And very often we're thinking about the practice in itself. What is the lowest common denominator that makes it legitimate? But the practice is always to achieve something. It's to establish the communion of the church, to be moving towards the realization of that. And there are certain practices that are moving in the opposite direction. For instance, the practice of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, where people are eating in a way that's directly contrary to um, the union of the church. Whereas there are other occasions where you do not have a minister, for instance, where to move in the direction of that would, as you say, involve deputizing someone from the congregation to to lead in that regard. Um, in other situations, it might be recognizing, is this practice actually going to lead to um, the sort of communion that it's supposed to? Um, I think very often in terms of, for instance, a baptism, as baptism is like adoption. And an adoption ceremony or signing of papers, etc., that just left the child out on the street would defeat the entire point. It's not the actual ceremony by itself, what that leads to. And often I think we're in danger of focusing too much upon these things in and of themselves without thinking about how they are confirmed in the practice going forward. The meaning of baptism, the meaning of the Lord's Supper is very often um, weighted prospectively. It's what happens next and what door they open into that. The church has a pretty important distinction here that that helps with this question, um, particularly the one about whether a father can baptize his child or whether he should. And that's the difference between validity and good order. A baptism is valid if a Christian does it with water uh, using the triune name. Uh, where it's done, how much water is used, what other what other events happen in conjunction with it. Okay, those are important questions, but that baptism can be valid. So if a father baptizes a child with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, probably going to accept that as a valid baptism. Now, was it in good order? And this is Alistair's point here. Good order has to do with the meaning of the, the right and the implications, um, which is why we do do baptisms in the community, usually in the before the worship service or in the worship service, because it is about incorporating this child or this adult into the body of Christ. Um, and th the way we do it, the, the good order we practice in doing that baptism helps reinforce uh, what's actually happening in the right, what God is actually doing in the right. 
So that's that's helpful. This also go it also points to this fact where or points to this uh, question about whether a minister needs to do it. Well, no, a minister doesn't need to do it, not for validity, but again, for good order, it helps that ministers actually perform baptisms because again, it helps people understand what God is doing through the rite. And that's the most significant thing that people be left in no no doubt about what happens, what God is doing to them or to their children uh, by means of the right. The, the last question, the last part of the question has to do with uh, in a situation where somebody has become a convinced of paedo-baptism, but there's no paedo-baptist church nearby. That's the circumstance when, the question is whether that's a circumstance when a father could do it. And, and I would want to emphasize also the importance of believers being under authority. So presumably, let's let's assume that the questioner uh, or the friend, uh, sorry, the friend that he's asking for, um, the friend is a member of a Baptist church. He wants to have his infants baptized, but the Baptist church won't do it. He's still a member of the Baptist church, and uh, he shouldn't go ahead and do anything without the permission and without the permission and the guidance and the advice of his leaders, of the people whom he's submitted to. You know, that doesn't mean that he couldn't leave and go to a different mm-hmm. church at some point. But if he's in that situation that he needs to honor those who've been set over him. And in a number of circumstances, I know of people who have been paedo-baptists mm-hmm. in Baptist churches and by, with the permission of their Baptist, uh, of their Baptist pastors have gone to a paedo-baptist church, had their infants baptized and remain members in good standing of the Baptist church. Now with their infants baptized by no means a perfect situation, but um, it's, that's the, uh, that's the, a way of honoring the circumstances that they're in and the the leaders that God has given them, while at the same time uh, trying to fulfill what they believe in their conscience God wants them to do. Yeah, over the years, I've, I've done three or four of those. And you're exactly right, Peter. It's always with the consent of, of the leaders of the Baptist church. And there are other times when there was no consent. And yet, and yet at the same time, I'm, I'm always warning the parents that, you know, um, you're going to go back to this church and the child is not going to be right. recognized as a baptized Christian. So you, you are going to have that <laughs> uh, to deal with. So, you, uh, of course, there's all sorts of complications, but you're exactly right about the consent of the leadership. And part of that is just honoring what baptism and the Lord's Supper mean that they are about communion and entrance into the church. And if you're celebrating those in some sort of sectarian way that is putting you at odds with the congregation that you're affiliated with, then you're undermining those things themselves. And so it's important if you Mm -hmm. are going to baptize your infant and you're attending a Baptist church to do so in a way that maintains and seeks to um, honor the union and communion that you have with that particular congregation. I'm curious if James has any thoughts on on these uh, questions. In general, yeah, I would want to stress the importance of, of remaining faithful to the um, church, which people are presently committed to and to the authority structures there. And, um, I mean, I, I actually know of at least one church where, uh, there was a couple who wanted to baptize their, their newly born um, child and didn't do it, um, su- submitting to 
uh, the elders of that church. And then a similar case arose um, a bit later and then another one. And after a while, that church did actually begin to take then a, a Peter Baptist stance on, on these things. But that happened because various you know couples were um uh, submissive to th- that church and and didn't just sort of uh leave but re- remained in uh fellowship and and were obedient and then slowly over over time a, a change took place so um yeah for that reason i would want to stress um the importance of of remaining in in fellowship rather than doing anything that could be detrimental to it yeah of course uh, taking taking the example of moses that alistair alluded to uh, if God is trying to kill you because you haven't baptized children, <laughs> uh, then by all means uh, get your wife to do it, and then and then you're good. <laughs> Should we move on to the next question? The next question is this: uh, What is the case for and against a more Catholic or Eastern Orthodox approach to saints and icons? Does Theopolis hold a standard Protestant view of the issue? Uh, and on the last question, the answer is yes, although uh, I'd be wanting to probe a little bit what the standard Protestant view of the issue is, because uh, some Protestants would say the standard Protestant view is that uh, the second commandment, which forbids the making of graven images and likenesses, uh, applies to pictures of Jesus. It applies to adornments in the sanctuary. Uh, and so there should be uh, no likenesses of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth, anywhere in the sanctuary, if you're playing it strictly. Oh, and you should, you should not have Sunday school materials with pictures of Jesus. It, if, if that's what you're thinking as the standard Protestant view, then Theopolis does not hold to that. I'm speaking as the president of Theopolis, so I can speak for Theopolis, I guess. So we can get into a discussion, see what the if there are any variations in opinion around here. As far as the, uh, my understanding is that the second command, what the second commandment prohibits is not the making of those images and likenesses, but rather the use of those images and likenesses in liturgical, those liturgical use of it. And I think that the argument for that is pretty straightforward, that if the second commandment forbids making of any likeness, then that contradicts what God later instructs Israel to do in building the tabernacle, because they are making likenesses of things in the heavens and things on the earth to adorn the tabernacle. So uh, unless God is contradicting himself in the space of a few chapters, then don't make any likenesses. Then a few chapters later, make make golden cherubim. Unless Yahweh is contradicting himself in the space of a few chapters, then the second commandment is not prohibiting the making of those things, but it's prohibiting liturgical use of those things, particularly as the commandment says, uh, serving them and prostrating before them. So uh, that's the way I understand. We, there's more to unpack there, but that's a that's a at least a beginning. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe I could probe the issue a bit further. So, in terms of then that second commandment, um, if we are going to ground what constitutes a violation of it and what doesn't solely in intention, maybe that's what you're saying, Peter. I'm not sure. Like intended use, then um, yeah. How, how, how do you then sort of define idolatry exactly? Yeah, I think that the I'm not sure I want to rest everything on intention. I think intention plays a role, but um, I mean, think about the, the example I've used as the golden calf, both at Sinai and with Jeroboam. At Sinai, they say, "Behold, your gods who led you out of Egypt. This is the god of the Exodus." The intention is to worship the god of the Exodus. Jeroboam says something similar, 
so the intention is to worship the the true God, uh, but they're doing it by uh, serving uh, liturgical priestly service to an image, uh, and so then it's the it's the liturgical action that's prohibited. So I, I, I take the commandment not just not as two separate commandments, but kind of a uh, thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness in order to prostrate before it or serve it. So well, I wouldn't rest everything on intention, uh, but in, in the use. So, so for example, you, uh, you got a Bezalel makes a golden cherubim. The intention of the making is kind of irrelevant to the commandment in a sense. It's what's going to happen to it. Is it going to be put in the most holy place as the throne, the earthly throne of Yahweh, or is it going to be part of some kind of liturgical service done to God through service to the cherub. Seems to me that a number of the practices associated with icons, um, the treatment of Mary, for instance, as well, arose out of orthodox struggles with heretics on particular key points. And those practices were almost... um, accretions that developed and got completely out of control in response to genuine errors about, for instance, the claim that Mary is the God-bearer. It's an orthodox statement. But when you try and have a form of piety that is asserting that fact, you can often get yourself into all sorts of trouble. Um, If you're talking about Christ's human nature and developing a theory of icons and distinguishing that from idols. Again, you can get yourself into all sorts of liturgical dead ends that really should not be pursued. But there's an orthodox impulse there. But there's always the danger when you're working against the foil of heretics that you end up losing the center of balance of biblical piety. And I think that's one of the concerns that we have to restore that sense of the central balance, um, to recognize that many of these practices, whatever the impulse that arose, um, have deeply misplaced the center of gravity. And as a result, what arises from them can almost be unrecognizable from what we see in scripture. Um, there can be all sorts of fine um, distinctions that are drawn um, and other things like that that try and present these things as lying within the bounds of orthodoxy. But when you stand back and see the big picture of what's being done, it really does look out of kilter. And I think that instinct is absolutely right. It is out of kilter. And so the biblical um, recognition that something that is even good under certain circumstances, like looking to the bronze serpent, can be twisted and distorted. It can become a form of idolatry. Even the temple can become something akin to an idol under certain circumstances. And that concern for the sort of piety that we bring to these different objects or aspects of worship, I think maybe can provide a more critical means of judging whether these things are should be left in or out or what they're contributing or detracting from worship than simply the very hard lines um, of an orthodox theology by itself. 
I believe Jim deals with this pretty effectively in his little booklet, uh, The Liturgy Trap. And so if the questioner has not read that, it would be helpful to read. Uh, and and um, riffing on Alistair's comment here a few minutes ago about, you know, the, the shape of biblical piety and what it's designed, what and the design of biblical piety. It, one, one of the things Jim brings out is that when you have shrine worship, when you go and uh, uh, do ritual obeisance before an icon or before a statue, or you talk to it, or you pray supposedly through it or to the saint who's represented, you, you're not going to get any response. Um, you're, it's only going to mirror back to you what you think uh, your own ideas. Um, there's not going to be any interaction, which is one of the purposes of the body of Christ is that we pray for one another, we talk to one another, we share with one another. And then what happens is that other person uh, becomes an instrument of the Holy Spirit to push back or to or, or just to help in ways that we maybe are, are not going to anticipate uh, going to that person or praying with that person. Um, and it's that kind of personal interaction in the body of Christ, which causes us to grow and mature. Um, and without that, if we're just uh, interacting with a picture, uh, it's only going to, it, it, it's only going to uh, mirror back to us what we, what we think. So I had a, I had a friend in college who had a picture of Jesus that he had on his desk. And he would tell me that every morning he would get up uh, and look at that picture. And the picture had an ambiguous kind of face to Jesus. And if he thought the face was smiling at him, then he was happy and, uh, you know, was encouraged and affirmed. Uh, and then at the end of the day, he would look at it also to see if it was frowning or smiling. Well, um, <clears throat> why not rather uh, talk to somebody? Uh, why not rather share with somebody in the morning uh, and uh, rather than look at a, a static picture? That's 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 what this if kind I could of thing just leads add a to. If I could add a gloss to that, Jeff, the the language of image I think is crucial in the second in the second word, uh, and the root behind it or the background behind it is the creation of man in the image of God. So you have a displacement of attention from the image of God in your neighbor to the image of some likeness in, in a picture or a statue. Uh, and, and it's interesting to compare the kinds of things that people do to their idols. Uh, they, you know, ancient priests would come in and serve a meal to the idol. Uh, you'd uh, clean up the idol. You'd kiss the idol. Uh, all those things are things we're supposed to do to, for one another. I mean, we're supposed to greet one another with a kiss. We're greeting the image of God when we do that. So I think that the estrangement from from humanity and from the body of Christ, I think, is a crucial. Uh, that's a part of the crucial point of the commandment. I think practices surrounding the saints can really vary from context to context, and it might be worth thinking about positive practices in this regard. Um, I used to work in Durham Cathedral, and they one of the things that Durham Cathedral is famous for is it's the site of the burial of St. Cuthbert. It's also the burial place of the Venerable Bede. And within the cathedral, behind um, at the very back of the cathedral, you have what's called the Shrine of St. Cuthbert. And you go in there 
And one of the things that stands out about the way that it's framed is that Cuthbert is put forward as an example of faith in Christ. Um, And so he's someone to emulate in his relationship to Christ. And you're given a prayer there that you're encouraged to pray, which is very much pushing that particular line. Um, The focus is not Cuthbert. The focus is um, Christ with Cuthbert as an example. Um, And also the recognition of the way in which Christ has been active within this particular region in the past. And I think within Israel's history, you have something of that too. Um, Exemplary heroes, as it were, people like Abraham or um, the patriarchs, people like Elijah and Elisha, and others who have passed through particular areas who associate with specific regions. And something of their memory is preserved as an example for faith in God. It's not that you have these little cults developing around the prophets and the um, the great heroes of old themselves, but rather they are spurs to faith in God. And that practice, I think, under certain circumstances, it can be very good. But what has concerned me is seeing in so many cases what could be good, even with all the encouragements to practice this in a good way, people still lapse into a sort of idolatrous impulse. And preventing that can almost require just a blanket prohibition or restriction upon these sorts of um, cults of the saints, because people just do not tend to do this in a way that is conducive to genuine Christian faith in Christ. The saints are so often seen as intermediaries. By the way, while I've got you guys here, can I just ask you a quick question. So I'm due to have a um, dialogue with a Orthodox Jewish guy soon, and um, we're going to be discussing New Testament prophecy, and uh, or, or may may get onto it anyway. So um, I wondered what examples would you say there are in the Old Testament of multiple fulfilments of narratives and things. So you know, very happy with the idea of the exodus as a motif or something shown as in you know the flood on genesis 12 and so forth but do you think there are places in the old testament where that's um mandatory to uh, having a proper view of the old testament or do you think it's just something you can do to the old testament telescoping prophecy yeah is, is that what you is that what you're talking about james uh, where um yeah, I, I, I suppose so. So in the same way as, let's say, Pete, uh, Matthew sees um, Jesus's flight from the Exodus as filling up Hosea's, you know, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Do you think the Old Testament explicitly does that kind of thing itself? I think there are certainly ways you can see prophecies being fulfilled in various stages. I mean, for instance, God bringing his people first of all, to Sinai, then into the land, then the establishment of the temple. Each one of those is a level of fulfillment, um, a stage. And I think can bear something of the weight of a grander movement. Um, So I think, so I'm thinking of something like the way in Exodus chapter 15, 
I remember a study on this. Someone, um, and I'm 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 not connecting to who who did this. Um, talk about the way uh, earlier scriptures are fulfilled in later scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. Does that, does that ring a bell to anybody? Um, not particularly. James, could you pose the question you're asking this way? Is there anything in Hosea 11 that would lead a reader without Matthew to think, well, there's a further, there's going to be a further development of this. This is not just an allusion back to the old Exodus, but it's a prophecy of something in the future. Is that, is that the kind of question you're asking, whether the Old Testament itself pushes you into that reading? Yeah, I guess, I guess it is. Yeah, it's, it's the same essence, yeah. Because you definitely have the idea of the Exodus having to be fulfilled. Um, I mean, you have the original Exodus, and then you have the expectation of a new Exodus in Isaiah and elsewhere. So it seems to me you've already got a framework within which that use of Hosea makes sense. Right. Well, I guess, yeah, yeah this, this, is, this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but maybe this would be a somewhat... Uh, analogous. Rich Lust just preached on uh, the genealogy in Matthew 1 yesterday and talked about, talk about Daniel uh, Daniel 9. And you've got the 70 years of exile, which are coming to an end. But then the angel reveals to Daniel that there's an additional 70 period that's going to be uh, until the Messiah comes. So there's a, there's a kind of um, small-scale Exodus and return, but that's subsequent to that. There's this there's this larger seventy period, and then a further return, a more fulfilled return after. But that I mean that's pretty explicit that it's there are two different stages to it. Um, so it's not like, uh, yeah, it's not like you have to infer that because because it's explicit. But that, it, it, does that hit close to what the kind of thing you're looking for? Yeah, it does. So I guess the argument. Would be- the, the argument would be like Ezra and Nehemiah is clearly in part the fulfillment of the return from exile prophecies in yep. Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc. But obviously, isn't the fulfillment of them? Right. I mean, you have already within yeah. those texts they're saying they're still in this state of exile. Um, so even within those texts that could be seen as an initial fulfillment, there is something of a denial that they've really been released from exile in its fullest sense. I think the Daniel example, you could also see in miniature, there is Daniel in the lion's den in the first year. um, It's associated with the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, but it's in miniature as opposed to the, um, the blowing up into the 70 weeks of years. It's a shrinking down into this short narrative that represents Israel in the den of the lions of Babylon um, being released. That's interesting. So I'm assuming, James, the the intention here is to try to find something that's persuasive to an Orthodox Jew, that he would have some reason to think, well, the, the Old Testament is pushing beyond the immediate fulfillments of these prophecies to something, something else. And Jesus is that something else. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me to disentangle, you know, believing that prophecies have that further fulfillment from my commitment to the fact that is that fulfillment. (laughs) You have to. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also maybe the distinction between prophecy 
per se. And what um, what's his name? Um, the guy who wrote Flame of Yar. Um, Davidson. Yes, yeah, Richard Davidson talked about the Devoret that there's something necessary in things being played out on this greater scale. So when things happen to Abraham, Abraham goes down to Egypt, etc. That's a story on one level, but on another level, it's pushing towards a fuller realization in history. There's some forward momentum, prophetic impetus there, which is not an explicit prophecy, but there is that impetus to it that needs to be taken account of. And in the same way with a lot of other events, there is so inherent within them, there's the expectation that they will be played out on some greater scale. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, thanks. You know, I wonder, this is, this is kind of a, this is turning the argument backwards in a sense, but I wonder if there's any, any uh, persuasive power in the several stages. One would be the Hebrew Bible is, uh, is incomplete. It it's there's it leaves it leaves uh, Jews with expectation of something further. And then the question is, what is the what is the last chapter, as it were, of the story of the Hebrew Bible that makes sense of the whole? So, and the Christian argument is that Jesus is the uh, is the climactic chapter that that uh, clarifies what the whole story is about. So um, that's, uh, I guess, the key to that would be to say that the, the to make the argument that the Hebrew Bible is incomplete and and begs for a completion, and then make the case that Jesus is uh, a plausible concluding uh, is the pl- plausible conclusion to the story that begins in in uh, the Hebrew Bible. I don't know if I'm making if that if that's making sense, but one place I'll go to are. Um passages associated with the Davidic covenant and the Psalms as well, where there is an initial level, but Jews and Christians have seen something within those Psalms that points beyond the initial character of David to the Messiah or the ki- whatever king it is, points beyond to some greater fulfillment. And the Psalms themselves seem to invite that sort of reading at certain points and it's not an exclusively Christian phenomenon by any means. Um, when Christians started to read these, um, Psalm 16, for instance, the um, not allowing his Holy One to see corruption, that is taking something that, if it's applied merely to David, seems a bit anticlimactic and right. it isn't really um, sufficiently encouraging or there's something about it has to be saying something about David's body in the greater sense, not just David as an individual, but David the dynasty, and there, Christ really makes sense of that. And so the early church's use of those prophecies, I think, is taking up an existing practice, and is taking it that next step and pointing it directly to a particular figure who very satisfactorily fills in that. Yeah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.